The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. Extreme weather labelled greatest threat to UK-built heritage. Concrete concerns back in the spotlight as Bristol Tower Block evacuated. Climate questions over Labour's 1.5 million homes pledge. And the London Mayor refuses sphere venue plans for Stratford. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week is Catherine Croft. Catherine is the director of the 20th Century Society. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. Extreme weather has been labelled the, quote, biggest threat to UK heritage. Just as the UN warns, we are now headed for a hellish three degrees C of heating by the end of the century. A new report from heritage organisation The National Trust, which was picked up by the BBC this week, indicates that the future of nearly three quarters of the historic sites it manages are threatened by flooding, wildfires and other extreme weather events. The charity, which manages more than 28,000 historic homes, 250,000 hectares of land and 780 miles of coastline, has called on the UK government to step up to help similar organisations adapt to our changing climate. The Trust has been monitoring the climatic threats posed to its estate by mapping recent extreme weather events and uses the data to create its own hazard maps to predict threats posed to its sites under the worst case scenario, which they define as greenhouse gas emissions continuing at their current rate. When the map was launched in 2021, it was estimated that the number of sites facing high-level threats would rise from 5% to 17% over a 40-year period. The report, which was released this week, now indicates more than 70% of its historic sites could be at medium or high risk of global heating-related extreme events by 2060. This comes as the UN issued a dire prediction ahead of the crucial COP28 summit due to begin in the United Arab Emirates next week. Data shows that today's carbon-cutting policies around the globe fall woefully short of the necessary emissions cuts and indicate that we will be likely reaching three degrees of heating during this century. The 1.4 degrees average global temperature rise has already led to the intensification of heatwaves, floods and droughts, along with a series of record-breaking temperature levels in 2023 alone. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said repeatedly the world is headed for a, quote, hellish future. So Catherine, what's this all about? Obviously, we're familiar with the horrific impact that climate change will have on humanity. Um, but why is the impact of extreme weather to heritage, especially built heritage, also such an important issue? Well, I think that if you feel that heritage is important and it improves the quality of people's lives and contributes to, to society in all the ways that it does, then feeling that 70% that of it is at risk is an enormous wake up call. I mean, the National Trust slogan has been, it has a fa that fabulous slogan, it's like for everyone forever. And basically they're saying, oh, we can't do forever, which I think is um, is pretty astounding. And I think for a lot of people, the, the National Trust is an incredibly valued brand. You know, it's right at the sort of secure heart of, for a lot of people, what being British is about. And they are saying, 
this is really important. So I think I think people are so used to statistics coming at them from all sorts of organisations that they're perhaps not entirely clear who or what they represent. But they think you know, the National Trust brings it home to people in a different way. So let's imagine what this looks like. And especially as you're a specialist in 20th century heritage and architecture design, um, what can you tell us about the unique sort of challenges that these buildings that you protect at the C20 Society face as a result of the climate crisis? When we look at a 20th century building, are we talking about the risk of extreme rain? Are we talking about like wildfires? Um, like w- What's likely to happen to this particular bit of our built heritage? Most heritage buildings in Britain, the primary problem is going to be more rain and more concentrated downpours so that it's that it's, it's the gutters um, and downpipes are just not big enough. And actually altering that without messing up a building is really, really difficult. I mean, as far as 20th century buildings go, all the sort of guidance and, and um, advice that's been put out about uh, adapting to climate change sort of equates heritage buildings still with traditional construction, you know, buildings built before 1914 and says, actually, you know, they're pretty good news. They've got high thermal mass. They are um, quite easy to adapt. Whereas a lot of the buildings that we're concerned about were built with a totally different approach to construction. And particularly those buildings from the late 60s and the 70s when, you know, electricity was incredibly cheap we all thought it was clean and um, sort of almost magical and it was transforming people's health and people's lives um, and now we realize that that's um, it's you know, very very problematic so actually retrofitting those buildings I think is really really challenging curtain walling you know that's the, the glade skin of a building is often absolutely critical to what makes it significant you know what happens if you take the whole curtain wall off and put it back you have you haven't got much building well certainly haven't got much of the original fabric of the building left so you're there thinking about you know is it the ideas is it the design intent of these buildings we're preserving in that instance so i mean i think i think it's difficult i mean i think there are major kind of um things like introduction of vacuum glazing um which are um really promising so that you can now get very thin glazing units to massively improve the performance of, of windows. So, I mean, I think we are beginning to, to, to make real progress, but there's still, it's still really challenging. And yeah, I do think, I think particularly post-war buildings are, are right at the top of the list of buildings that it's hardest to, to cope with. So what's interesting about this, um, the National Trust is basically saying to the government, you need to issue guidance to help all these kinds of organisations which steward this this heritage. And like you're one of those organisations in some ways. You know, you're a statutory uh, consultee on planning applications. When I think of the C20, I often think of um, you sort of battling someone who wants to demolish a building. Like that's your primary, like 99.9% of your bread and butter of your day. But is this, are you thinking, looking at this, climate crisis and thinking um we've got to change our workflow we've got to you know we've got to take up a new tack we can't just save these buildings from wrecking balls we've got to save them from uh giant hailstones oh well i think we've always been feeling that it's not just demolition that we're fighting against that we've got to actually show that these buildings can have fantastic new futures that they've got to work for the 21st century so you know reacting to climate change is just part of that and I think it takes it takes money and investment, and and I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about the the National Trust report, is that they're calling on government to to have 
um, a minister responsible for this and for, for funding. And they're not saying let's do it within the Department of Culture, Media and Sport or in the in the planning department. They're saying, you know, we want this person to be in the cabinet office um, because that or the treasury, you know, that's where the cash is. Mm. We suffer from having both heritage and architectural issues as pretty da- low down in the pecking order in um, in those departments that are perhaps not totally central to um, to government thinking and don't pull as much punch in government as, as the Treasury and the Cabinet Office. So the 2015 Paris Climate Accords, they established the well-known goal of limiting the average global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. So that's what when we talk about fighting climate change. That's what we're all aiming for. We can hit that. Things will supposedly be okay um it's getting pretty hairy so far like you know it's already extreme weather events wildfires heat waves it's all it's all happening and now we've just got um, the un climate scientists saying it you know we're gonna hit three degrees c rise by the end of this century um what does this all mean uh for built environments around the world like what what's going to be if, if we just keep going on this trajectory I don't know about you, but politicians are not particularly inspiring right now on this topic. Oh, I think a huge number of buildings are just not going to be able to cope, are they? And we are going to see major losses. And it's also going to be about about financial decisions. I mean, one of the things in that National Trust report is is just looking at, at Mullion Cove um, in, in Cornwall, where they've had massive um, rising um, sea heights and um, and it's about the money, you know. If you having to rebuild the harbour wall every single winter, you get to the point where you you know they they're talking about tipping points, and and we're going to reach those tipping points faster and faster, and get to the point where we do just have to say, well, maybe we can't can't keep doing this. So the Guardian this week reported on new data uh, showing that the richest ten percent of people around the world cause up to forty times more climate heating carbon emissions than the poorest ten percent. Um, so this suggests that emissions are very closely tied to lifestyle choices, sort of lifestyle choices that people embrace as they become wealthier. Just focusing in on architecture, you know, what role does potentially architecture, both contemporary and historic, play in all of this? It was really interesting. I'm sort of looking at the breakdown of, of, of what's causing those figures. I think it's really interesting. Um, a lot of it seems to be down to how much people use cars. So more and more um, pressure to to make sure that we're building cities that you don't need a car, that you can um, use public transport or walk. Um, ideal, ideally walkable cities would make a huge impact. And then there's an awful lot on just the sheer amount of stuff we all buy. And I was wondering, you know, there's still this um, feeling perhaps when people move house, buy a new house, that you, you know, that you want to be making your own impact on it and that people are still ripping out kitchens, ripping out bathrooms, feeling that's kind of the norm. And maybe we need to be just changing the climate to make sure people don't feel they need to do that. And perhaps more homes with more built-in furniture, more sense of permanence, building not just the exterior of our buildings, but, but our fit out of our, of our homes for a much longer lifespan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, okay, a bit of a, a bit of a critique of like the IKEA decking out your home perfectly. But really, it's about that ten percent. But what kind of role has architecture played in that? Because I think of the 20th century architecture, and I think of like amazing 
affordable housing blocks, social housing blocks, which strike me as exactly the kind of sustainable living uh, that we really need. You know, if everybody lived in a unit that was modest, uh, we wouldn't be in this crisis necessarily, right? But also, architects did play a role in creating these wondrous mansions, uh, which now people want to live in, whether this was in the 18th century, the 17th century, or the 20th century. Looking back to the Sterling Prize shortlist this year, that was criticised for not being about those flashy, glamorous, one-off buildings. Really? I wasn't the one making that criticism. <laughs> well, no, no, no. But I mean, I, I thought it was great that that was a shortlist that was about relatively modest um, architecture. It wasn't about sort of encouraging people to be all bling. And um, it was about thinking about good, sustainable design. And I think the more that we kind of get that message out, the less um, cachet there is to having a um, new mega mansion, um, perhaps the better. But I don't know how you stop rich people from flinging their money around other than by punitively taxing them, which would probably be an extremely good idea. A tower block in Bristol, which was evacuated last week due to fears of, quote, major structural faults, wasn't built to plan, according to reports in the AJ and BBC. Several hundred residents of Barton House, a 1958 housing block in Bristol Hill, just east of the city centre, were told to leave the building immediately on Tuesday, that's the 14th of November, after this was after Bristol Council declared a, quote, major incident. Uh, the evacuation was triggered by a series of surveys on three of the 98 flats in the 15-storey tower block. These concluded that fire, explosion or large impact would pose a risk to the structure of the building, which is made from a large panel system, otherwise known as an LPS. Following the evacuation, Kai Dudd, who is Bristol Council's Cabinet Member for Waste, Energy, Climate and Ecology, has said that the building, quote, wasn't built to the design specs and therefore had issues with its concrete sections. He went on to say, quote, if the building was built to design, we wouldn't have this problem. The issue is within the construction of the building and the job that was done at the time. It wasn't built to the design specs. That's the problem we're dealing with. LPS tower blocks were a popular form of construction in the post-war housing boom. An estimated 575, mostly from the 1950s and 1960s, are still standing throughout the country. But when the panels are poorly assembled, the buildings can lack structural integrity. Uh, for example, in 1968, in Newham, a block of flats called Ronan Point, partially collapsed, killing four people. Uh, in a statement, the council said the evacuation had been carried out to allow for further more in-depth studies on the building, which is the oldest of the tower blocks on the council-owned estate. So, Catherine, what's this all about? Is it a shock that these residential buildings are at risk of catastrophic collapse? And um, What's the impact likely to be for those residents evacuated, but also people living in similar blocks elsewhere? I don't know that it's a shock anymore. I think probably after Grenfell, we really have woken up to the fact that the building control system has completely failed us and that um, we just don't really know what level of, of control and, and care was taken in the construction of a lot of these projects. Uh, and it must be awful for the people living there. You know, I can't imagine where they've ended up being rehoused, how permanent that's going to be, how they're going to get to work and school and, you know, and just not knowing when you're going to go back. That must be incredibly stressful. Well, let's just zone in on 
LPS for a minute. Um, certainly, if you travel around the world, uh, you can see lots of buildings which are from that era, which are built from modular pieces that fit together. Why was it present in so many 20th century buildings in the UK? Um, and should we be concerned about this material itself or this technique itself? Or is it the kind of poor construction uh, that's the issue here? The... Yeah, it's poor construction. It's poor, poor putting the bits together that's the issue. And, and I mean, there is a lot of it because particularly in the post-war period, there was an enormous housing shortage and people were looking at ways to, to build as quickly as possible. So industrialised building techniques were, were the way to go. And it was thought that you could, I mean, and it did enormously speed up the provision of homes for people. And I think, you know, you mentioned Rowan Point. I think Rowan Point was kind of the popular endpoint for people supporting high-rise housing. But I think architects had already begun to question the social impact of putting people in large towers. So it's, it's a kind of combination of the practicals and considerations and the, and the social impact that led to a complete change of direction in the in the 70s. So if we just zoom in on Ronan Point, so this was a 22-storey tower block in Canning Town, East London. It partially collapsed in 1968, shortly after it opened. It was made from LPS, and the nature of the failure was put down to a combination of both poor design and poor construction. Um, what did that do as a kind of turning point to public perceptions around 20th century buildings and high-rise buildings in particular? Are we seeing a, a bit of a return of that kind of moment when with this fiasco in Bristol, but also um, the shockwaves that have been created around Rack. Yeah, I mean, Rowan Point was incredibly shocking. I mean, only four people were killed because it was it was a gas explosion that then triggered progressive collapse. So it's basically like blow out one panel and the ones above it fall in like 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 a collapsing house of cards. The uh, implication was that if it hadn't happened first thing in the morning, far more people would have been in the, that part of the block and the number of people killed would have been catastrophic. Um, I mean, with RAC, I, d I think we still don't really know what the full impact of RAC is. And, and the report that's just come out points out that it's just been really difficult to get the evidence together. There aren't enough specialist surveyors. You know, schools are, are understandably being really cautious if they're not able to definitely be told that they're in the clear. They're clearly very worried about what's what um, what might happen to their pupils. Some of the buildings that we've been, um, the heritage buildings with RAC that we've been involved with, they have been able to do detailed survey work up front. And in some cases, the answer to that has been, you know, even if you have got RAC, it's only spanning very small spaces and with fairly simple remedial work, it's fine. Whereas a lot of the rhetoric around RAC in schools is we've absolutely got to get rid of every single fragment of this stuff and, you know, rebuild and it's going to be incredibly expensive and disruptive to do that. At the Labour Party conference in October, opposition leader Keir Starmer pledged his party would build 1.5 million new homes in a bid to tackle the UK housing crisis. However, last week, the architect Astrid Smitham penned an opinion piece in The Guardian scrutinising the effectiveness of this approach, claiming we have a choice between, quote, acres of shoddy new builds or homes fit for the future. When Starmer made his appeal to the electorate, his speech made plans for a massive expansion of affordable housing, one of the crucial elements of Labour's election bid. At the time, campaigners commended the ambitious housing target. However, green groups were quick to highlight concerns over net zero and possible environmental degradation. 
Astrid, who herself is a recipient of the prestigious Neve Brown Award for Social Housing, agreed that delivering green and energy efficient housing should be key to Labour's plans and added that, quote, to truly solve the crisis, building more homes like the ones we are typically putting up now will not do. Instead, she argued that these homes must be designed with community in mind for them to be successful. By doing so, she posited, they will be able to tackle another chronic issue facing British society, which is loneliness. Her article also stressed the importance of designing homes which are adaptable to many different living situations, rather than the nuclear family housing model, which many are built to today. She noted that single-parent households, divorced families, flat shares, elderly people living alone, marginalised identities, extended families and blended families are all largely unacknowledged by current building standards. This comes as London Mayor Sadiq Khan unveils plans for boroughs to buy 10,000 private homes across the capital over the next decade. The Council Homes Acquisition Programme, CHAP, would allow local authorities to apply for funding to buy homes for social housing, including former council homes lost during Right to Buy. Khan said the new scheme would allow local authorities to, quote, move at pace to increase the number of of council homes and offer a lifeline for thousands of Londoners who are facing high housing costs. Um, So, Catherine... What do you make of Keir Starmer's plans to build 1.5 million new homes? Um, What does doing it right, as Astrid suggests, look like? I really loved Astrid's piece. I felt it was a really good sort of sensitive explanation of of how architects think and what they're trying to achieve, Um, you know, written for a a, a broad audience and really making it clear that architects think about people. And it really kind of struck me as being such a a different response to like the Thomas Heatherwick book, which talks all about, you know, let's design buildings from the outside and they need to not look boring on the outside. You know, she was really saying that our homes are about making relationships and um, and that that's absolutely crucial. So I felt that was a really powerful piece. Um, yeah, we need new homes. Yeah, it's great to say, you know, quote big numbers, but how are we going to pay for it and where are they going to go? But it's you know, it's definitely the case that we need to be building high quality buildings that do all the stuff that Astrid says, just so that they will they will last. Just thinking um, in his speech, he talked about... Um... Uh, I think he called it the the grey belt or something. So it's land within the green belt, which is, it's not brownfield land, but it's kind of like underused land. Um, uh, and that's where these new homes are going to be built. And there was also a sort of talk, I think, of new towns. I mean, what what are the precedents like for that? I, I mean, I, I know in London, we've got things like Thamesmead, we've got New Addington. Are those examples of doing it right or doing it wrong? Thamesmead has just about now got its transport links. Mm. With the Elizabeth Line that With goes the, to Abbey Wood. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Which is stunning. Yeah, and I think that, that's something that we really need to think about in terms of looking for, for locations for, for new towns is, is how, how is the transport going to work? How are we going to provide all the infrastructure they need beyond the housing? Mm-hmm. You know, the schools and the doctor's surgeries and the um, leisure facilities. Yeah, and certainly in the present era with our climate crisis, um, you know, the ideas of building things in, dependent on cars just can't cut it. Like um, Thamesmead took a long time to get its transport link. New Addington has a tram now. It didn't originally. Um, Alton doesn't have any mass transport other than buses going to it. Um, now, the 20th century was a period of prolific house building. Okay, So we kind of went from those early projects to 
some quite advanced later projects just when the housing boom was killed off. What are examples of really successful housing development that we should be looking to for inspiration? Because certainly when it comes to social housing, public housing, it feels like we were really on a high in the 70s, early 80s, and then we just lost decades worth of research and development and we're like starting again yeah, with sticks and stones. Yeah, well, I mean, Astrid won the, the Neve Brown Prize and Neve Brown estates are amazing. I think, you know, that's no secret in, in the world of architects, but I think there are still a lot of people beyond our world that don't know about those estates. So so imagine Keir Star was listening. He'd say, what, Neve Brown? Uh, what, so what, what, is, what does this look like? Yeah, well, get yourself to Alexander Road and um, and have a good look at it. And it's it's about, it's it, pretty high density, low rise, it's about making sure that everybody's front door opens onto the ex- exterior. So it's about stacking things up in quite complicated cross sections. It's about making sure that your route to your front door goes from a very public street to a sort of little um, pathway that you share with two or three, four neighbours, you know, that you're gradually refining yourself down till you get to your very own front door. But it's there are places to sort of stop and chat and build up relationships, get to know your neighbours. Everybody gets a balcony. Those are kind of really good mix between being quite secluded, but also you can talk to people over the over the top if you want to. And then looking at the some of the, the Ted Hollenby estates, which um, were built out across Lambeth, including Central Hill, currently proposed for partial demolition there, which I think is a scandal. Um, you know, those are, again, about grouping buildings in ways that encourage people to interact, making a a total place, not just doing a row of houses, but making a little mini city within the city and incorporating nurseries, incorporating green spaces, um, giving people a real sense of of community and identity. Uh, The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, pledged plans to to buy back 10,000, or sorry, to buy 10,000 existing private dwellings to make new social homes. Um, what do you think of this? Um, is this a good idea? Uh, interestingly, this means we're potentially in a situation where local authorities will be buying back ex-council stock, uh, which was sold under right to buy, but paying a lot more than what they what was actually originally taken in as the receipts. But potentially also means um, you know Victorian street houses, whatever Edwardian interwar buildings uh, being brought into the the public housing estate. Whether it's feasible or remotely viable, I have no idea, but I think it's really telling. I think it really shows that people feel that that, that local authorities are probably good, safe, reliable and responsible um, landowners. Um, And it's an indictment of private landlords and the insecurity that people feel um, having private landlords. I think it makes enormous sense in many ways in terms of you know the ability, our ability to upgrade properties. You know, if you happen to own the whole street and you can do it all in one fell swoop, then that's going to be much more cost effective and probably architecturally more satisfactory. London Mayor Sadiq Khan has vetoed plans for a controversial, populist-designed Madison Square Garden, that's MSG Sphere, in Stratford. Uh, This was reported by the AJ this week. The 21,500-capacity sphere-shaped entertainment venue had been planned for a site on the edge of the Olympic Park 
in Stratford, East London. Um, but issuing a decision this week, the mayor's office said the scheme would result in, quote, an unacceptable negative impact on local residents. Uh, the statement went on to say London is open to investment from around the world and Sadi wants to see more world-class, ambitious, innovative entertainment venues in our city. Um, but as part of looking at the planning application for the MSG sphere, the mayor has seen independent evidence that shows the current proposals would result in an unacceptable negative impact on local residents. The mayor's decision relates to concerns around light pollution, uh, the huge electricity consumption, uh, impact on nearby heritage sites, and the lack of green credentials to the project. And just to explain, you know, this sphere is a giant sphere with lights all around the outside and pretty much lights all in the inside as well. Um, very visible uh probably quite spectacular on the inside but uh quite spectacular on the outside as well uh from quite a long way away and uh if you've ever been down to this particular spot yeah there's a lot of shops nearby but there's an awful lot of housing uh right around it that will look directly onto this thing um the consultancy company WSP uh, also found errors and omissions in the environmental and energy impacts on the original application in regards to UK government guidance on lighting. Uh, the London Legacy Development Corporation approved the populist design project in March last year amid fierce opposition from campaigners. More than a thousand objections have been submitted to the LLDC before the mayor's decision, while there are also more than 300 messages backing the scheme. Uh, a spokesperson for Sphere Entertainment hit out at the mayor's veto, saying, quote, While we are disappointed in London's decision, there are many forward-thinking cities that are eager to bring this technology to their communities. We will concentrate on those. Well, very good for those cities. <laughs> Glad for them. Um, OK, so Catherine, what do you make of all this? Uh, do you think the MSG Sphere would have been an iconic piece of 21st century architecture? Or has Sadiq Khan made the right decision by refusing this development um i'm not a fan of this scheme i think it is too big and too intrusive and and i think it was all about um you know for the local authority it's incredibly tempting to to approve something that will bring enormous economic boost lots of jobs but thinking longer term i don't think it was in the the best interests of, of the city to to um to say yes so so i'm pleased about the decision I mean, I think these massive entertainment venues do have a huge impact on on local communities. And um, I mean, the the other one that's kind of rumbling along at the moment is the the Ocean Diva nightclub. Do you know about that no, one? No, it? it sounds great. It <laughs> it's a massive, massive boat, apparently the size of seven London buses, um, which would go up and down the Thames. And and it needs to be licensed, and they've chosen to try and get it licensed in Newham. But actually, um, you know, we'd um, go and park outside people's um, apartments in in Southwark and all up and down the river and um, accommodate up to 1,500 people and be incredibly noisy. Um, you know, and, and these things are environmental nightmares. I mean, just the idea that you could have something that's sort of one size fits all for every country around the world seems intrinsically wrong. I think something that's on the edge of the park, you want something that, that will be a venue that people come to throughout the day and, and will, can cope with all sorts of different types of event. Um, it just felt this was a, a kind of bludgeoned in um, mega scheme. Moving on to the culture section, uh, last weekend, a special day of events took place at the South Bank Centre to commemorate the life of the acclaimed architectural historian and campaigner Elaine Harwood. Um, the, the day was organised by C20. Um, Catherine, 
Elaine was a good friend of yours. Can you tell listeners a bit about her? Yeah, Elaine Elaine was amazing. She was incredibly energetic, absolutely dedicated to um, architectural research and to just spreading that research. So she, she worked for um, Historic England, um, did lots of work around getting buildings listed, uh, but she also did lots of voluntary organisations, including 20th Century Society. And she was fabulous at organising tours, um, dragging people off on bike tours as well as walking tours. Uh, lecturing all over the country, uh, really kind of explaining not just about architectural form, but about the social and economic circumstances that led to development of different types of building and sharing that in a really accessible way. How did she arrive at this point of being this such an amazing person? Was Did she study architectural history or was she an architect by training or a journalist or writer? Or... Um, she studied history initially at Bristol and then she went to work for what was the kind of um, leftover bit of the London County Council Historians Department. What? There was a London County there was Council a London Historian? Start, yeah, yeah, yeah. Historians they, Department. They, they, they you know, started off in County Hall, got shipped off to Regent Street and then kind of joined on to what became English Heritage. And they had a real kind of old boy culture wicker baskets full of files, tea lady with a trolley initially. Um, but they did really, really good um, serious research from, um, you know, from first principles and um, and led to the listing of a lot of, of buildings. Um, and, you know, she started off as, as the real junior in that office and just, I think, rose through that to become really, really respected within Historic England. She then, she did do a did a PhD on the South Bank, which is why we had the um, event at the in the Purcell Room on the South Bank. It was kind of really dear to her heart, and she became particularly known for for studying brutalist architecture, and um, um, really making the case for why that was special and important. And so I'm hearing that she was a professionally she was an architectural historian and kind of campaigner, but then also that was that was her life beyond it as well. So she was really actively involved in all kinds of things beyond. Yeah, Elaine, she was incredibly generous with her research. So she was someone that anyone could reach out to. She was forever writing, you know, chapters for people's books or about obscure architects all over the country. Uh, she was lecturing to students. Uh, she would um, send you emails with all the information you needed at four o'clock in the morning. I don't think she ever switched off. Uh, when we used to, um, when we went, went on 20th century trips abroad she was quite often my roommate and um you know um she would uh, be up at six o'clock in the morning to go running through whichever city it was taking photos as she went um and then she'd be you know clubbing after i'd collapsed at the end of the day she's just had an exhaustible um vitality i think and i think we were all incredibly shocked that she she died she was 64 um, and she died of meningitis very, very suddenly. And and I think in part the the day on Saturday was, I mean, a tribute both to what to what she'd achieved as a historian, but to her her support of so many other um, people working um, in the field around the country and abroad, um, and just the fact that she was such such fun to be around and. Um, an amazing person what was the event like because um i think it was all the tickets sold out it was hundreds of people in the purcell room um what kind of sessions did you have what was what was what did people share what did they present uh, we had lots of um lots and lots of speakers there were so many people i wanted to 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 include and we also had quite a lot of film clips i mean elaine did stuff right back um 
from there was a, a series about conservation called One Foot in the Past. Um, so we had some clips from that, and we had both um, one of the um, presenters and the director of of that talking about you know, very early TV coverage of, of heritage issues. Um, we talked about um, her; she was very interested in cinemas and and Art Deco architecture. Uh, and then um, talking, I mean, lots and lots of stuff about brutalism, as you'd expect, and um, and about how one might go about photographing buildings, the relationship between text and photograph, how you put together a really compelling book, how you um, you know how you do really great tours, um, really a lot about you know the the using architectural history as a means to an end using architectural history to win over hearts and minds and to to save the best of the past and so i think a lot of people would be interested to know um who hadn't encountered elaine uh, either academically or personally um how her legacy will continue we we have set up a a, a trust in her name so it's the elaine harwood memorial fund mm. details on 20th century website one contributions gratefully received um but but yeah, I mean, I, I, she wrote in Space, Hope and Brutalism that, that you know, that the, the task of explaining why post-war architecture in particular is important and, and why we should be keeping the best of it is 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 still um, very much an ongoing thing. We really need to, to to up pressure on that. So the fund will go to to keeping keeping the casework going, um, expanding casework and campaigning. And um, it will include a, um, a short internship each summer for uh, somebody entering the field, um, and um, um, and we've still got you know there's still Elaine Harwood um, books and articles coming out. So yeah, she's she's written for 20th century. She's written a book on Goldfinger that's coming out next year. So um, yeah, her legacy will I think be enormous, and um, um, she's going to be really missed. Catherine, thank you so much for being on this week's The Brief. Uh, where should listeners go to stay up to speed on your writing, your campaigning? Is there a social media place or is it a website or a publication? Uh, 20th Century Society is on X and on um, Instagram and we have a um, very extensive website. And we do lots of um, talks and tours in London. So, yeah, come along and join us. Thank you. Thanks again for being on the show. You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Thank you.